Brothers and sisters, uh, please join me now in our prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11. Listen to the word of God. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and a lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. Listen again to God's word. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we await the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved, Now, hope that's seen is not hope, for who hopes for what's seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray once again, brothers and sisters. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hope for the redemption of our bodies. This might be an unusual hope, 
particularly because the popular conception of salvation tends to be far more exclusively spiritual. The common vision of heaven and eternity entails our souls shuffling off this mortal coil and going off to another heavenly realm uh, to be with God. And yet, the witness of and from Christ raised from the dead, as it has been handed down from Christ himself to the disciples through the generations of the last 2,000 years to us, that witness is far more abidingly earthy. In it, material creation is not something to be escaped, but rather something to be redeemed. On this biblical view, our bodies are not wicked, uh, and, they're not a meaningless, and they're not meaningless compared to our souls, but rather are integral to our existence as creatures of the living God. The scriptures testify that we are simultaneously spiritual and bodily beings, and our destiny, is not, our destiny is not liberation from the body, but resurrection from the dead when Christ returns to usher us into the kingdom come. And although in some very real capacity our souls are with Christ upon our death, that's not our ultimate resting place. The promise embodied in Christ is being raised from the dead. And again, this is maybe an odd idea. Many of us probably have deep issues with our own bodies, And even if we cast aside those issues that we could probably admit have more to do with a personal sense of social acceptance or attractiveness, that sense of our bodies that might be viscerally really powerful, but on reflection not actually uh, that meaningful, our bodies come with a plethora of aches, pains, limitations, aches and pains that only increase with age. So we might wonder, why is God raising these things, these kinds of bodies from the dead? Wouldn't it be nicer to float free from a physical body? It appears from Paul's letter to the Corinthians uh, that this was not an unusual thing from some in the early church to think as well. In line with powerful strains of ancient Greek philosophical and religious thought, it appears some in the churches in Corinth believed that earthly bodies were just simply inferior to heavenly souls. And so the teaching that bodies, <clears throat> that bodies would inherit the kingdom of God, it just seemed horribly misguided. Yet Paul famously reaffirmed in his letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, that, quote, I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain. And your faith has been in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then also those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. Now, the the hope of resurrection, the hope of resurrection is simply and profoundly the hope that we will stand again as part of creation, an intimate relationship with God as well as each other as part of God's good creation. And that comes through uh, really directly in the Greek word for resurrection, anastasis, which means precisely and directly, precisely and directly uh, simply and graciously, 
standing up. The Greek word for resurrection just means standing up. And now as we remember uh, and thank uh, our veterans this Memorial Day weekend, uh, veterans who have risked uh, their lives so that others might live, as we remember as well those who've been lost, whether in battle or even here at home or just through illness, through the march of time, this vision of resurrection, this vision of someone standing back up, someone standing again who was breathlessly still and pale, whether on a stretcher or on a hospital bed, someone we may have seen lowered into the grave, this vision of standing again, this promise from God, this word from Jesus as he proclaimed in the Gospels to Jairus' daughter, little girl, stand up. And she immediately stood up and began to walk around. That promise of resurrection, that reality of resurrection, is powerful. It's the joy of this simple thing, standing back up. That seems far more palpable, real, and true to the goodness of God in this creation of which he made us a part than if we were to simply float off as souls. Now, along that theme of resurrection, of standing back up from the dead, in his letter to the Romans, Paul also hits upon the sufferings in this life, sufferings of loss as well as of death. That kind of suffering courses, the theme of that suffering courses throughout Paul's letter. And we should remember that he's writing that letter to the Romans to a community uh, that would soon be viciously persecuted by the emperor Nero. But Paul, whenever he talks about suffering, and in particular suffering in Christ, he sees everything, everything that might have to do with that suffering, in light of the hope and promise of our resurrection. The forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ and the coming resurrection that we have through that. Now again, much of the suffering that Paul endured was precisely because of his proclaiming the gospel. And Paul in Romans declares that that kind of suffering actually can strengthen his hope in resurrection in Christ. Uh, He writes in chapter 5 of Romans, uh, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we're justified by faith in his resurrection and his dying for our sins. And we boast in our hope of sharing in the glory of God, but not only that, we boast and we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And later on, uh, from the passage that we heard this morning, from chapter 8 in Romans, Paul also declares, I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That is the glory of the resurrection, the coming resurrection. Um, And those kinds of sufferings, it's everything you could imagine. Uh, Paul had a long list of recounting his sufferings in uh, one of his letters to the church in Corinth, and he he recounts them as follows. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. But Paul, through all those sufferings, he constantly comes back to affirming that they're nothing compared to the glory to come. And when it's, he, when it's when he's noting, uh, as we heard in our, chapter, our passage this morning, uh, that these sufferings are nothing compared to the glory to come, it's when he's talking about that that he also notes, um, almost as an aside, but a powerful one at that, he notes that the whole creation itself all of creation, is eagerly awaiting that resurrection as well. That revelation of the children of God. He talks about the ways in which all of creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The redemption of human bodies is the redemption of creation. Our being raised imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power, raised as a spiritual body, transformed in that way as radically as a seed transformed into a plant, transformed from our lowly bodies now into glorious resurrected bodies like Christ's. Paul is saying that all of that has profound implications for the rest of creation. So why and how? In answering that question, it's helpful to take a step back and think about what creation is in the first place. Material creation, the things we can touch, hear, smell, taste, see, it's affirmed to be good in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God created light separate from the night, sky and land separate from the waters, vegetation and living creatures teeming across land, sea, and sky. And he sees every aspect of this creation as good. And creation, in turn, uh, having been made good by God, testifies all the time to its creator in its intricacy, in its beauty, in its order, in its awesomeness. As Psalm 19 declares, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And more than that, just proclaiming God's glory, creation also rejoices in the Creator. In Psalm 65, the pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain, they shout and sing together for joy. And in Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes and he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. 
And this feeling that creation has in all of its goodness and delighting in God, it's mutual. God delights in creation, proclaimed it good. And in Proverbs 8, there's that powerful passage in which God, in making creation and talking about the wisdom through which creation is made, wisdom is daily God's delight. Rejoicing before God's always, rejoicing in the inhabited world, delighting in the human race. Psalm 104 follows suit as well, proclaiming how manifold are your works, Lord, and wisdom you've made, the, made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And ask God to always rejoice in creation. Just testifying to the fact that this is why we were made, why all of this, everything around us was made. It was made good and for delight. God's delight, our delight. It's part of this good creation that, again, God made us. And along this line, our being uh, a part of a much larger creation, um, we should note that we are just integrally, integrally, interwoven with the rest of creation. It's not clear what any of us would or could be absent our connection to the rest of creation. If you just imagine a person floating off in the deep depths of space, that is not a flourishing person. That is not a living person. That is not a person who is living, breathing, glorifying God. It's the God-crafted atmosphere, the water, the sunlight, the fellow creatures of planet Earth that make our lives possible. Our bodies are interwoven and interconnected with the rest of creation. And this comes across most clearly in eating, an activity through which other parts of creation are literally transformed into the cells of our bodies. There's a theologian named Norman Wurzba who captures this reality of our connection to the rest of creation through eating really poignantly when he writes, Whenever people come to the table... They demonstrate with the unmistakable evidence of their stomachs that they are not self-subsisting gods. They're finite and mortal creatures dependent on God's many good gifts. Sunlight, photosynthesis, decomposition, soil fertility, water, bees, butterflies, chickens, sheep, cows, gardeners, farmers, cooks, strangers, friends. The list goes on and on. Eating reminds us that we participate in a grace-saturated world. A blessed creation worthy of attention, care, and celebration. And that attention, care, and celebration, it's evident in Christ's time on earth as well, and in the promise of the kingdom come, in the ways in which Christ embraced feasting, he embraced drinking, he embraced the bonds that it generated of fellowship. And the creation and the crafting of food and drink through farming, hunting, gathering, uh, these are one of the prime ways in which we uh, are fruitful stewards of creation and have been throughout human history. There is a very real degree to which our bodies exist uh, intricately interwoven with the rest of creation. 
And so both our lives here and now, as well as the redemption of our bodies to come, our resurrection, they very intuitively entail the redemption and the renewal of the rest of creation. And it's important to note, though, that God not only intricately has interwoven us with the rest of creation as a part of it, God also fashioned us in his image with the expressed role of ruling in his service over creation, to till it, to keep it, to cultivate it to a fuller fruitfulness and flourishing than would happen without our care. We're not the center of creation, but we have an important God-given role to play as stewards of it, crafted in God's image. We are creatures who can cultivate, create, nourish, flourishing, both flourishing of our own communities, but also of other life forms. Because we have this unique relationship with God, having been made in God's image, we've got a vast capacity for imagination, cooperation, understanding, creativity that other creatures don't have. And the flip side of that, of course, is that we can also undermine uh, and push the land to futility, to barrenness. We can prevent other life forms of flourishing and bearing their due fruit if we fail to live into our calling as God's image bearers, as God's stewards of the earth's fruitfulness. Idolatries, whether they're around uh, wealth, comfort, security, they can cause us to carelessly overuse or ignore rather than carefully attend to our role as God's stewards over the earth. And this is where creation's groaning comes in. In our sin, we fall short of our role as stewards. We fall sinfully short of the glory of God, as Paul writes in Romans. And while the last century has been in a league of its own, things like deforestation, soil exhaustion, soil erosion, exhausting other species, they stretch back to varying degrees as far as human agriculture goes. As the historian J.R. McNeil notes, uh, we've cut timber, we've mined ores, we've generated wastes, we've grown crops, we've hunted animals for a long time. In modern times, we've generally done more of these things than ever before. And for the most part, the ecological peculiarity of the 20th century, and now the 21st, is merely a matter of scale and intensity. And we don't need to belabor this point, uh, but... Our present way of living in the developed world and increasingly in the rest of the world, it's exhausting lives of other creatures beyond their capacity to regenerate, vastly beyond anything Paul or anyone in the ancient world or really before the 20th century could probably have even imagined. Um, And there's a vast array of resources that one can look into in trying to address and rein in uh, our ecological footprint. But this morning, we're again focused on the ways in which creation is awaiting birth of the day when we will live as servants of God's righteousness, when God's full glory is revealed in and through us in the redemption of our bodies, in our full sanctification as servants of God. The theologian and biblical scholar N.T. Wright, he hits on this point in his book, Justification, and he writes as follows along the lines that we've been discussing. We are not saved from the world of creation, but saved for the world of creation. 
Humans were made to take care of God's wonderful world, and it's not too strong to say that the reason God saves humans is not simply that he loves them for themselves, but that he loves them for what they truly are, his stewards, his vice-regents over creation. That is why resurrection means what it means. It's not a bizarre miracle, but the very center of God's plan and purpose. God will renew the whole creation and raise his people a new bodily life to share his rule over the world. That is what the whole world's waiting for, and this great renewal of all things has already already been launched in Jesus Christ and is already being put into operation through the Holy Spirit. I think it's worth noting in closing this morning, why anyone would take any of this or trust any of this to be true. The goodness of creation, the redemption of our bodies. And I'll say, in regards to the hope of the redemption of our bodies and the goodness of creation to which it testifies, on a very basic level, I trust that to be true myself for two reasons. The first is because I genuinely believe that the creation is good, that there's something infinitely good evident in creation. And that's a sense one can get through really simple things. When holding a newborn infant, when biting into a ripe, sun-warm tomato that's fresh off the vine, when reading a compelling story, playing a song that courses through one's bones, when losing track of time in an evening amidst conversation with friends, when looking in awe at the depths of outer space through a telescope, when being utterly compelled by the witness of Christ and the disciples through the ages who do things like love their enemies as they love themselves. Amidst all the suffering that is in the world, It's things like this, moments like this, moments in which things seem to lean so powerfully and yet so effortlessly into the way life is meant to be. Those are the kinds of moments in which you're enwrapped in the flow of something that is genuinely good and testifies to the fact that this is a good creation made by a good and loving God. And the second reason I believe creation is good and that our bodies will be redeemed and raised as Christ was from the the dead is because quite bluntly and simply and basically, I believe Christ rose from the dead, which meant that his ministry of compassion and justice and reconciliation was not snuffed out by violent suffering, sin, and death, but rather that that suffering, sin, and death have been conquered. And my trust that Christ was raised from the dead is anchored in the witness of the disciples. And in particular, their transformation, an unbelievable transformation from being people who fled for their lives at Christ's arrest to being people who somehow stood up boldly in the face of death to profess reconciliation in God through Christ. Paul similarly went went through an unbelievable transformation from a man persecuting the followers of Christ to a man willing to endure and risk everything 
in order to proclaim hope in Christ. At root, I'm drawn in to trust in Christ in the hope that death does not ultimately win, but rather that goodness of the immortal, invisible God, only wise, is the heart and ultimate destiny of existence. It's a hope that suffering in any and ultimate sense has been subdued and brought into resurrected life, raised from the dead, to enjoy God in harmony with one another as part of this good creation. And this hope for the redemption of our bodies, this hope for the glorious restoration of the rest of creation under God, is at once something that places us in an abiding assurance that, again, any and all suffering here and now, as Paul famously and powerfully proclaims at the end of chapter 8, any suffering here and now, in the midst of it we're assured that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And let us stand and respond to our salvation that we have in Christ, the redemption of our bodies, and the restoration of creation with the hymn 100, All Creatures of Our God and King.